Welcome to FAIR Podcast. We'll dive deep into the latest news and how it impacts each of us on today's FAIR Podcast, Breaking News. Let's start the show. Welcome to another FAIR Podcast. We're going to be taking a look today at this Fourth Circuit decision about the travel ban and what it means for immigration law and what it means for uh, Trump's immigration policy going forward. And this is Carl Filippini uh, with FAIR. Joining me today is Matt O'Brien, our director of research. How are you today, Carl? Great. Uh, you know, Matt, um, you know, there's there's a lot to this decision. I mean, it's a it's a 188 or almost 200 page, you know, monster decision counting all of the uh, concurring decisions, the dissenting decisions. And, you know, what we want to do is just kind of break down and look at a couple of the key areas uh, of this decision, because it's really unprecedented in a lot of ways what the court has done. I, I think you'd agree, you know, with that. Um, so let's talk about, I think the first thing uh, is about, you know, talking about a lot of the precedents um, and the judges who issued this decision on, on the appellate court basically uh, in your view, I think are looking at uh, the wrong precedent, basically. Is that is that a fair assessment? That's correct. Um, in a case where the president has authority to act with regard to immigration that's been conferred by a valid statute, the rule has long been under a case called Kleindienst versus Mandel that the court won't intervene so long as the president is using the authority granted under the statute on the basis of a facially legitimate and bona fide reason. Right. In this case, the court completely departed from Kleinstein's versus Mandel and did not apply the rule in any recognizable fashion. Yeah. I mean, it, it, what, you know, and I'm, I'm not a legal expert, let me say that. I'm not an attorney. Uh, but for me, just as kind of the educated layperson viewpoint, reading the decision, the judges who were issuing this basically said, yes, there is this precedent, but we're going to ignore it because we want to apply a completely different precedent, uh, which has to do with domestic policy. It has nothing to do really with immigration policy per se, you know, talking about this, the lemon test basically. And it's about, uh, you know, the establishment clause. And so they use that instead of the precedent you're talking about, which clearly dealt with an immigration related case, right? I mean, that's correct. So Kleindienst versus Mandel, uh, was a First Amendment case that had to do with whether American citizens in the United States had an enforceable right to receive information from mm -hmm. an individual abroad and could therefore sue the government if a visa was denied in order to ensure that person's admission to the United States. Right. And the Supreme Court very clearly said, while there is a First Amendment right of people in the United States to receive information, that right does not trump the president and the Congress's ability to set rules and to operationally make decisions about immigration. Yeah. And and interestingly, you know, if you read through the dissenting uh, opinions by uh, the three dissenting judges in this case, um, they're all pointing out to there are many other precedents um, talking about how, yeah, the, you may even have a harm, you may be able to show harm, but does that harm really outweigh a public policy interest or the interests of you know national security, for example? And you have to balance those two things, which in this case, the majority was not doing. But, you know, one of the other things that, you know, we were talking about kind of the First Amendment implications, but that's kind of related to the second point I think you had, right, about, uh, uh, you know, what this decision means. Sure. So 
what the court did in this case was they simply ignored the Mandel decision, but they tried to make it look as though they were applying it, and they did it in such a way that they ignored all the substance of the rule and turned this into a a straight-up First Amendment case. And they fabricated a brand-new rule that provides for the consideration of campaign statements by a presidential candidate to judge actions taken by that candidate when he or she later becomes a, a sitting president. And that's particularly problematic because here in the United States, freedom of speech protects candidates' rights to speak freely to a crowd during mm-hmm. a campaign on their feelings about particular issues. And this has the potential to chill yeah. the desire of candidates to speak freely out of fear that later on they'll be criticized for what they said on the campaign trail. Yeah. I mean, and, th- and that's one of the things that is really shocking about this decision is is the idea that uh, anybody can, if they are aggrieved by an executive order or an executive action of any type, can now turn to the federal courts and say, hey, I feel bad about this. You know, the president has ostracized me in some way. And this opens the door to any kind of number of lawsuits over any presidential action. I mean, not just immigration, but anything that it could potentially implicate, you know, uh, a First Amendment uh, violation of some sort. You can now challenge that um, no matter what the you know impact on national security or anything else is, because, you know, this court has basically said we're going to look beyond or behind, you know, to try and get it uh, in an idea of what the president's intent was. And we're going to look at campaign statements. We're going to look, not just look at what the president says, but we're going to look at what Katrina Pearson said. We're going to look at uh, the president's press secretary, what he said. We're going to look at, you know, campaign websites. We're going to look at all this kind of stuff. And, you know, the the, the majority justices, I think, tried to paper this over. They said, oh, this is, you know, the, these concerns about us looking at college term papers or looking at, you know, a Rotary Club speech you gave 15 years ago, uh, that's not, that doesn't really apply here because, you know, it's Trump, basically. I mean, is, am I wrong with that? It's just, this is basically because it's Trump, we can ignore this is kind of what the ruling is. I think it's pretty clearly part of the slow motion coup against the Trump administration. And you raise a couple of interesting points. First, when Trump was speaking as a candidate, he wasn't speaking with any authority other than whatever authority he could muster by his personality mm-hmm. and his ability to appeal to voters. But he wasn't a president. He wasn't exercising any authority yeah. under any statute or anything else. The other issue is that generally speaking, First Amendment rights don't apply to people who are outside of the United States who are not U.S. citizens. And what the right. court appears to be trying to do here is to create a constitutional issue mm-hmm. that trumps the president's ability to make decisions about immigration. Yeah, and I th- and I think that's one of the things that came up in the dissenting opinions. Um, and, and it's really the word that I saw in the dissenting opinions that I did not see in any of the majority uh, opinions was sovereignty, that immigration is a basic exercise of sovereignty. And you can't place the the type of limits um, on international actions by a president that you can on domestic actions because these are things these are the people that you you know are claiming to speak for are people who are not u s citizens who are not part of our political nation, in other words, and the Constitution does not provide them the same level of protection that it does to u s citizens, people who are overseas don't have the same rights. And that goes back to the precedent you talked about. This guy was a uh, communist, right, uh, who wanted to come into the United States and basically who was excluded, wasn't allowed to come in at that point in time. 
So, so this kind of relates to that. You know, we're talk, we've been talking about the Establishment Clause, but this kind of relates to the idea of where the Establishment Clause fits into this analysis, you know, in immigration policy. In other words, that this is kind of a new, uh, a new position being taken by the Fourth Circuit here about how the Establishment Clause can limit immigration policy or limit the discretion of immigration officials. Is that, is that a fair assessment? Yeah, and the answer to your question is the Establishment Clause doesn't fit in the immigration context. Uh, what it essentially says in terms of religious discrimination is that the United States will not establish a state religion. However, if you envision a line that wraps around the United States, those prohibitions apply within the United States. Mm-hmm. When you talk about people outside the United States that have no connection to U.S. Uh, as citizens or lawful permanent residents, that the Constitution doesn't provide an enforceable right to foreigners to be admitted to the United States. If it did, mm-hmm. as you mentioned previously, it would completely undermine the sovereignty of the United States. So the problem that we run into is that there is a limit to the jurisdiction of the United States and to Mm -hmm. the applicability of the Constitution. And the Fourth Circuit doesn't appear to want to have acknowledged that in its decision. Yeah. And all the cases that are being talked about by the majority here are cases about uh, religious liberty in a sense of the government is establishing a religion, whether it's posting the, the Ten Commandments in a courthouse, for example, is one of the cases. Or you're setting aside a special school district for a particular religious group or things of that nature. But this is about an action about people who are outside of the United States, about our foreign policy. And, you know, the majority in this case didn't appear to really grapple with the idea in the minority and the dissenting opinions about the idea that any policy, right, any policy that disproportionately affects members of one religion overseas, good or bad, is now open to challenge under these under under this analysis, basically, right? I mean, anybody, if you have any policy that affects Muslim-majority nations in a particular way, uh, detrimentally, or if you do a trade sanction policy, let's say, against the same six countries, that could be challenged under the same rationale that the majority opinion provides. Sure. So there's a couple of cases that, that are particularly relevant here. The first one was called Damore versus Kim. Mm-hmm. And it's significant because it affirmed the holding in an earlier case called Matthews versus Diaz that Congress regularly makes regulations which, if applied to U.S. citizens, would be unconstitutional, but mm-hmm. when applied to foreigners, are not unconstitutional. Mm-hmm. And this goes back to the notion that the United States as a sovereign nation should have the ability to determine who may enter the United States and under what conditions. And there's right. a case that applies to that, which is called EQ versus United States, mm-hmm. in which the Supreme Court said that no one has an enforceable right to be admitted to the United States. That decision belongs to the executive branch. Those were a lot of great points, Matt. And uh, I know we have folks who uh, are interested in kind of, you know, the 10,000-foot view of this case. So there's a lot of things uh, going on in this decision that we could talk for another hour probably. But in terms of, you know, how unprecedented would you say this decision is and just in terms of the legal basis that the this majority of this Fourth Circuit is claiming to make this decision on? It's completely unprecedented. The Fourth Circuit appears to be making up new law out of whole cloth And there's a basic principle in the canons of statutory construction 
and and the rules of judicial interpretation, which say that if you have a statute and it's workable on its face, then you interpret it in a way that's logical and you don't come up with illogical, unworkable interpretations right. of the relevant rules. And in this case, the, the court has come up with a completely unworkable framework that, quite frankly, is inappropriate under any applicable standard of legal analysis. Yeah. And, and it's it's really, you know, shocking uh, it was shocking even at the, at the district court level to hear the ACLU basically say, if this was any other president other than Trump, we wouldn't be challenging it because we would view it as constitutional. But because it's Trump and because we think he's doing this for you know the wrong reason, then we're going to challenge it. But if it was any other president, they wouldn't be challenging it. You get to the heart of the matter there. And ultimately, this is a question of what is the role of the courts? And in this particular case, the court has unilaterally appointed itself the arbiter of what American policy should be. But under our three-branch system, that's not how things work. The legislature is responsible for making the rules. The executive mm-hmm. is responsible for implementing them. Yep. And the court is simply supposed to interpret the laws. It's not supposed to engage in social engineering from the bench. Yeah. Thank you, Matt, for you know providing us with some insight, and we'll have a lot more probably coming up in le- terms of legal analysis from FAIR's legal experts, including the Immigration Reform Law Institute, taking a deeper look at this decision. Thank you again, Matt O'Brien. That's all for this episode of FAIR Podcasts. Be sure to click the subscribe button and head over to fairus.org to contact us through email or Twitter at FAIR Immigration to keep you up to date on the latest immigration update and reports. That's fairus.org.